In 2007, the Coen brothers gave the world a dark drama about the increasingly bleak nature of humanity. In 2020, Wild Turkey gives us a celebrity-endorsed bourbon. The film is no country for old men. The whiskey is Long Branch. And we'll review them both. This is the, the Film, film and, and Whiskey Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 2007 drama, No Country for Old Men. Just how well do you know Shigar? What do you want to know? I just want to know your opinion of her in general. Just how dangerous is he? Compared to what? The bubonic plague? He's bad enough you called me. Yeah, he's a psychopathic killer, but so what? There's plenty of them around. Bob, you know what I just realized? What's that, Brad? Our, our names are, like, perfect for this show. It's, like, all one syllable. Bob <laughs> Book. Brad G. It really does have a nice crisp. It rolls it's, off the tongue. Yeah, well. man. It sounds really good. How you doing today, man? <laughs> I feel... I don't know, man. I'm a little tired. I got my flu shot. I, I don't... I don't want to use the word loopy, but I'm just kind of like, hmm. I'm just, I'm very in the moment. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Brad is apparently also tripping on peyote right now. So cool. Very in the moment. <laughs> yeah, dude. I'll tell you How what, you man. It is, it's like a really dreary, rainy fall day outside, and I have been wanting to take a nap all day. So I'm with you on the sleepy front. And Brad, today we have a movie that I hope was not too sleep-inducing for you, but it is a very <laughs> slow-paced, quiet film, despite the, the insane levels of suspense that it ultimately builds to, and that is No Country for Old Men. This is the first Coen Brothers movie we've had on the podcast. We have never done a film by these writers and directors, uh, Joel and Ethan Coen, before. We have Fargo coming up, I think, next season, so we have that to look forward to, but Brad... I guess I'll start with this. Before I even ask if you've seen No Country for Old Men, how familiar are you with the Coen Brothers films? Bob, I actually literally just, like, as we were doing our opening, pulled up a list of Coen Brother films. And I have seen Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And their remake of the classic True Grit. I loved True Grit, man. I really thought, I thought it was better Did than it? the original, to be honest. Oh, ooh. Oh, <laughs> we're going to have to debate that one at some point. I did not sorry. I did like the new True Grit. I just don't I I don't think you can match the 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 original. Oh, interesting. All right, so Brad, you you've seen a couple of their films. They first kind of struck gold as indie filmmakers with their movie Blood Simple in the mid-80s. Uh and then they followed that up with Raising Arizona, a really funny comedy. They've gone back and forth between drama and comedy their whole careers, and as they've aged, they've they've gone a bit bleaker. It seems like their movies more and more deal with this idea of kind of, I guess the word I would use is nihilism. The world is, is a sucky and unfair place, and doesn't it suck, and isn't it unfair? And that's, <laughs> I think in a lot of their films, that's like the whole point of the movie. And so I just want to say up front, Brad, that like, I'm not the world's biggest Coen Brothers fan. And that's not to say I don't appreciate them. I don't respect what they do. I, I completely appreciate their films. 
But it's really rare that one of their movies kind of gets under my skin and stays with me. I think sometimes they're just so cold and off-putting, and they don't really seem to have a lesson or a moral beyond this sort of nihilistic thing that they go for. And I think a lot of people would actually extend that to this movie, because it, this is definitely one of their darker, bleaker movies. Yeah, Bob, I, this might sound a little bit weird, but watching this movie reminded me of a really cool book in the Bible. There's this book called Ecclesiastes, and it's this like really old Hebrew poetry about how everything is like smoke and it's just kind of there and then gone and life, you know, you're just kind of meant to enjoy life here where it is. And there's there's all sorts of like tones from the book of Ecclesiastes that I was feeling here in No Country for Old Men. Like things are just, they just come and go, Bob. You know, we don't really have much control over the life that we live. What you got ain't nothing new. This country's hard on people. You can't stop what's coming. It ain't all waiting on you. That's vanity. And I think that you really see that in the, uh, I, I would probably call the main character of the movie, uh, Anton Sugar. Yeah, I think, Brad, I think that's a really good point. And, and forgive me for undercutting your fantastic point early on, but I have to ask because the way you pronounced the name of this movie was No Country for Old Men, and it made me think, No Country for Gary Oldman. Yeah, I get the heck out, man. <laughs> we don't want you here in Texas anymore. Oh, that's so funny. I, I hope you keep pronouncing the movie, like emphasizing it just like that throughout the episode. No country for Oldman. No country for Oldman. So, Brad, as we move into Brad Explains, which is, you know, America's favorite segment, this is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen, often for the first time. Brad, I assume this was the first time you saw this movie, correct? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you, yeah. You say that like you're proud that you had... <laughs> held off on seeing this movie yeah i you know i really tried hard i almost watched it so many times <laughs> it's so hard to do this podcast with you sometimes it's a it's a garbage movie for garbage people <laughs> all right brad walk us through a spoiler filled breakdown of the plot of the movie no country for old men yeah dude anton sugar is i, I think he's a hitman Based on the rich person that at one point is like, we've got to rein him in. I'm going to send Woody Harrelson to kill him. Uh, but yeah, he, he seems like a hitman and he kills people a lot. Uh, and sometimes he'll like flip a coin and give them the choice of whether or not they're going to die. But other times he just indiscriminately kills. So that's like his whole deal. The other guy, Josh Brolin who plays a dude named Llewellyn? Llewellyn? <laughs> Llewellyn. Llewellyn? Yeah, yeah, Llewellyn. Is that how you pronounce it, Llewellyn? Yep, they say it multiple times in the movie. <laughs> yeah, I know they do. It was tough, man. Uh, yeah, Llewellyn is out hunting in Texas, and he comes upon a drug deal gone wrong, and he finds a case with, you know, like two and a half million dollars. Um, so like any sane person, he takes it, and he's trying to run away with it, but this this hitman, Anton Chigurh, keeps finding him and like attacking him. 
And it's just a really long, drawn-out thing where you're, like, wondering what's going to happen, and he's hiding in a hotel, and he, like, buys these tent poles so he can push it back in the air vent and then pull it back out. And it's, like, it's it's very long and drawn-out, and you get really excited about this battle between Moss and Sugar, and then it doesn't happen. And, and Moss dies off-screen. And, you know, this whole time he's been trying to get his 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 wife and and her mom out of town. And she's like really confused about things. And Tommy Lee Jones is in it. And I don't know if he really does anything else, but he's a sheriff. And and he tries to help Moss. And I think that's all I have to say about that. (laughs) Brad, I can tell when you just don't give a shit about a movie because Brad Explains <laughs> is so lackluster. And like, I don't I don't think you even attempted to put that into like a coherent arc or a story. You're just, there's this person, he does some stuff. At the very end, you're like, Tommy Lee Jones is also in the movie. But, uh, Bob, <laughs> does he actually do anything in the film? I think Tommy Lee Jones is probably the most important character in the movie, Brad. But we'll, Bob, I, guess, I guess we'll Tommy, get into talking about that. Tommy Lee Jones, just like, follows them around like a lost puppy dog and kind of goes, huh, huh, yeah, huh. Like, that's all he does. Is that your Tommy Lee Jones impression? That's all he does. He doesn't actually do anything. So I have a feeling it's going to be uphill sledding for me this episode to try to get you to even engage in what I'm trying to talk about with this movie because it is already clear to me you did not like this movie. Fair to say? Well, uh, I I might be being a little facetious. There there are good parts to this movie. I think it's really well made. The cinematography is impressive. The story itself has some interesting elements to it. But by the end of the film, they just kind of slowly kill people off, mostly off screen. And and it just has a super lackluster ending. Hmm. So I, I, I wouldn't say that I dislike it, but I don't know if I would say I liked it. All right. I think that's a fair place to start. Uh, let's break down the movie a little bit more, though, Brad. This movie was adapted from a novel by Cormac McCarthy, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author. Uh, it was, in some ways, the Coen brothers' first true adaptation. Normally, they write their own material. You know, Cormac McCarthy became really, really popular uh, in the later 2000s with his book, The Road. And I think that if you're familiar with The Road, this is a, a pretty similar kind of thematic movie. It's set in 1980. Texas. And most of the setting of the story is this really kind of desolate, you know, the the more desert parts of Texas. And, you know, obviously it really reflects like what's going on in the lives of the people in the movie. Everybody seems to kind of be working in isolation from each other. But I think that even though this is a Cormac McCarthy story, like through and through, it also really fits in with the Coen Brothers filmography. You know, like I was mentioning earlier, as it's gotten kind of more and more bleak over the years. Uh, But something about this movie, Brad, really just hit home with people because this ended up being the film that won Best Picture from the year 2007. And in that year, we saw a huge resurgence of these kind of neo-Western movies. You had this movie, uh, There Will Be Blood, The Assassination of Jesse James all came out in 2007, which- Bob, I don't I don't think you said the name of that movie right. <laughs> oh, forgive me. The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. Oh, yes, I've that seen one, that. That one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. So, Brad, I guess my my question, my first question is like what do you think it was about this this year, this period that like stories like this seem to be coming, you know, a dime a dozen? 
I mean, I will say that I, I think at this point the country saw the economic collapse coming, and they were just uh, they were just getting ready, man. They were prepping for that nihilistic, you know what? The world's ending, the market's crashing. Like, what's the point of anything, anyways? You know what? That's I, I know you're being like slightly facetious, Brad, because obviously a lot of us couldn't see that that collapse coming. But I think that especially in the year or two following the release of this movie, this movie and There Will Be Blood especially got held up as kind of like the new classic films. And I think part of that is because everyone was so pessimistic and cynical as a result of what they saw going on around them in America. Right. Well, I mean, you see the government bailing out these massive companies, you know, the auto industry and the banking industry. And you just kind of you get to a point where you're like, well, what am I even doing? Like I do my voting and I pay my taxes. But in the end, like it just feels like the rich are getting richer. Uh, the middle class is slowly losing ground. And, and what's the point? And so I, I can see why this type of message in a film would be attractive to a 2007 to 2010 American public. But like, I, yeah, I, I don't fully understand the love of this movie. But like, you know, friend of show, Jordan McCain, when I told him this is the movie we're watching, he goes, oh, man, that's such a great movie. And I was like, oh, cool. I'm excited to watch it. And then I watched it. <laughs> All right, Brad. So maybe we should get into something a little less analysis, -y, uh, a little a little less analytical with the movie and just talk about, you know, the performances. We really do have three main characters in this movie. There's Llewellyn Moss, played by Josh Brolin. You've got Anton Chigurh played by Javier Bardem, and then you've got Sheriff Bell, played by Tommy Lee Jones. Now, Jones is the person who starts off the movie by narrating it, and he really does kind of frame the whole movie around the concept of basically the title of the movie, that he is a sheriff that's getting ready to retire, that he doesn't understand the world around him as it's come to occur, that he spent his whole life trying to stave off evil and he just sees people slipping more and more into depravity. And he doesn't, it's not even that he can't fight it anymore. It's that he just doesn't understand it. And he doesn't feel like he belongs in this world anymore. And after and that, then, go ahead. And then at the end of the movie, his, his relative just goes, nah, people were always that evil. Yeah. Which <laughs> I think is a really important point. And I am excited to get into bringing up some of these more analytical points. But anyway, I, I say all that to say, Tommy Lee Jones sets up the film, and I guess I want to talk about him first, Brad, because it sounds like to you, he was like the least essential character to the story. But setting all that aside, what did you actually think of his performance in the movie? I mean, honestly, it's not that I didn't care for his performance. I thought he did a good job. I, it felt like he was just the messenger that the Coen brothers were trying to use to get their point across. And that it's almost like he could have just been a narrator of the film rather than a part of the film. Does, it, does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. And I think to some extent that's probably a fair critique, Brad, because one of the big issues I have with this movie is that, like, the themes of the movie and the plot of the movie don't always go hand in hand. And what I, what I mean by that is, like, it's very clear by the end of the movie they're trying to make this big argument or big treatise on how everybody can be corrupted, how everybody is becoming corrupted, and how the people who have kept themselves from becoming corrupted are getting less and less, and they see the world kind of slipping out of their grasp. The, the problem, though, is like you said, Brad, Tommy Lee Jones's character and his actions don't have much of an effect in the movie. And again, that's the point they're trying to make. But like, 
if if the character isn't going to actually advance the plot forward in any way, why not just have him be kind of an impartial observer? Why does he have to be in the movie as much as he is? And I think when you with Llewellyn, like, is he supposed to be like bad by the end of the movie or corrupted by Anton Sugar's actions? Or is like is Anton Sugar supposed to be a metaphor for pure evil or like pure neutrality? Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good point. You know what I mean? Like, I think you could see that either way. Right. And his character, I guess we can move into talking about Javier Bardem. He won the Oscar for this movie, and I think it was actually really well-deserved. He is a stone-cold killer in this movie. He's incredibly creepy. You cannot get a read on him. And I think the whole point of the movie is that he exists in this weird kind of, like, amoral space. He's not really evil. He is, I mean, like, he commits evil acts. But even the other bad guys in the movie, like Woody Harrelson's character, who is also a hitman, talks about how he's not in it for the money. He doesn't care about any of this. He has this weird code that he he adheres to, and he's just kind of a psychopath. And to be honest, Brad, the more I thought about like what kind of person is Anton Chigurh, the more I kept coming back to the Joker in The Dark Knight. And I kept thinking of that scene where the Joker is on that barge with the Russian mobsters, and there's just a pile of money that he lights on fire. And he he tells them, you know, this city deserves a better class of criminal. And Shiger, I don't think, is as well-defined as the Joker because you really never do understand his motivations. And you really also don't understand what his code is because sometimes it seems like he's an agent of chaos and chance. And other times he seems very meticulous and orderly. But I think that they're getting at something like that, where he is a person who, in some sense, can't be corrupted because he's not tempted by the kind of things that the rest of us are. I yeah, I do think though that you pointed out my main problem with with, you know, Sugar's character. And by the way, I thought that Bardem's performance was truly spectacular. Like I think that he did exactly what he needed to do to create a menacing just downright scary villain. One of the best villains I've seen in a movie in a long time. But I do think that there's some problems with the way he is written as a character, because like you said, Bob, sometimes he operates on chance. Sometimes it's it almost feels like he just operates on a whim. And other times he operates on like a code of like, well, I promised your husband that I would kill you. He had a chance to save you, but he didn't. He wanted to save himself. So I'm going to kill you now. I know she was crazy when I saw you sitting there. I know exactly what was in store for me. Call it. No. I ain't gonna call it. Call it. The coin don't have no say. It's just you. I got here the same way the coin did. And it's just kind of like, okay, well, do you have a code? Do you follow luck? Or do you just do it on a whim? Yeah. Because I I think that a well-defined character that had more accessible motivations, uh, accessible to the audience, I should say, I think he would be that much more terrifying as a character. It's one thing when you have Hitchcock giving you a bunch of birds as the villain and like, they're animals so like there's almost something creepy about the fact that you know they can't have a motivation they're just invading this town and killing people it's different when you have a human being 
and you can't get a read on them, I, I really think he would have benefited from some more linear writing for him. Yeah. And I think this is one area where we can agree, Brad, because I think the Coen brothers are in that echelon of directors where in their writing and in their direction, when something doesn't quite make sense or doesn't quite add up to the audience, it's always chalked up as they're so ahead of us that the audience must not know what's going on or like they must have intentionally left that ambiguous. And I honestly think that like, I think that's a terrible argument to make. We made, we talked about that with Kubrick a little bit in 2001. I don't think that you can let them off scot-free for the fact that sometimes his motivations seem to be mixed and seem to be muddled. Even if the point they're trying to make is that everything happens by chance and there is no reason behind it, I think they could have made that point a little stronger than they do because, again, there are times when Shigur is so meticulous and so driven and so calculated that it really undermines this idea that everything happens by chance. Well, and if they really wanted to hone in on the chance part, he wouldn't be a bounty hunter at all. Right. Like, he would just be... Like a serial a, killer. Right. A serial killer. Exactly. Yep. And so that's that's my big struggle is like, like I said, I thought his performance was great. I just think that the writing for him could have been a lot more powerful. Well, and then you have the third person in the movie, Llewellyn Moss, played by Josh Brolin, who's this character who kind of goes back and forth between having a, a set of morals and also being corrupted. And I keep using that word because, you know, I'm going to talk about in the second half what I think the main point of this movie is. But Llewellyn is definitely in the middle of these other two extremes, which would be Sheriff Bell and Anton Chigurh. I thought Josh Brolin was really, really great in this movie, you know, playing a guy who is definitely in over his head, who's probably a little more dim witted than everybody else around him. And I I remember when this film came out, Brad, I obviously I knew who Josh Brolin was. I had appreciated him in some movies, but this is where I felt like his career really took a step up and and kind of catapulted him into taking on some of these more serious, more layered, more complex roles. I think he's fantastic in this movie. Yeah, I really think that he has the best character in this film because I honestly, Bob, I don't feel like I saw him as a character being corrupted. From the very start, you know that he's the kind of person that says, you know what, like, it's two and a half million dollars, I'm gonna take it. And you see him come back to try and give water, you know, much later in the evening, but he's like, man, I'm gonna go do something stupid because I kind of have to. And he tries to take water to, you know, this dying Mexican man, and, you know, he's passed away and it leads into this car chase. But in the end, what you learn about the character is that he he is the stand-in for the audience of like, yeah, if we ran into a Mexican drug deal while we were hunting and we found two and a half million dollars, we probably would take it. And we mm. probably would feel a little bit bad and try to take the guy water. And we try probably would try to get our wife out of Dodge so that, you know, we could have a nice life together. Like, none of his actions in this movie felt wrong or evil to me. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, I don't know if I, I would say they weren't wrong, but like they were at least understandable. Like he was yeah. he was a guy who found a case full of money and saw a way out of his life situation. Like I think anybody could put themselves in that shoes and ask themselves what would you do in that situation. Right. And and I think that's why, you know, he is the most relatable character, and I really think it's why it's such a disservice to just 
just pop him off screen. (laughs) Yeah. You know what? Let's talk about that right before we go to break here, Brad, because I think that might be one of my biggest frustrations with this film is that they make the decision. And again, it's in keeping with the idea of theme over plot. They they make this decision that you you follow him through all these close calls with Shigur. He he gets shot by Shigur. He recovers. He he finds the money again. He's on the lamb again. And then all of a sudden there's a fade out when he gets to this motel and he's like talking to this pretty lady at the pool. And when it fades back in, it's Tommy Lee Jones who has tracked him to this hotel that motel that he's staying at. And when Tommy Lee Jones pulls up, he finds the aftermath of a, a literally just completed assassination by the cartel where they've killed Moss and he's just laying there dead. You never see him die. And honestly, Brad, we're not the only ones to complain about this. This was a major point of contention with some critics of the movie who said that, you know, he was the audience's stand in. And even if they wanted to make the point as a filmmaker that everything happens by chance, there's no rhyme or reason to it. You should still have given him the dignity of an on-screen death just so that the audience could process it. Because the way that they decide to present it, it's almost confusing. It like it really pulls you out of the movie for a second because you're like, wait, did he is that is that Josh Brolin on the ground dead? Is he dead now? We jumped ahead in time and it really does create this weird dissonance. And I understand, again, thematically what they were trying to do. Oh, see, we can just kill off our main character and it's like nothing even matters. But like at what cost? Because it really did pull me out of the movie as a viewer. And that's the thing. You have to look at like movies like this and say, I I get that the Coen brothers are trying for something of an art house style film where it's introspective, it's quiet, it's trying to get a message across more than a story across. But at a certain point, there is an interesting story happening in the middle of your message. And I think it's dishonoring to the people watching your movie to just throw the story to the side so that you can keep pushing your message onto the audience. Yeah, completely agree. Well, Brad, it is time for us to get into the whiskey portion of our show. So what do you say we review this wild turkey long branch? So today we are checking out Wild Turkey Long Branch. Now, Brad, in order to review this whiskey, we have to tell Film and Whiskey Nation a little story. Uh, <laughs> do do we, though? I think we should tell them a little bit of the story, Brad. Uh, I think you should tell this story, Bob. So uh, a couple months ago, we had secured an interview with Wild Turkey Master Distiller Eddie Russell. We were super pumped about it. We both called off work to record this episode. It was going to be a my favorite movie. And the people at Wild Turkey were generous enough to send Brad and I each a bottle of Long Branch to sip on air with Eddie Russell. We did the whole interview. It was freaking phenomenal. And when we got off of the interview, we found out that uh, the Zoom meeting did not record, even though we thought that we had set it to automatically record the meeting. 
all we had was Brad's audio and my audio and no Eddie Russell. And so we had to completely scrap our plans to release that episode and find an alternative use for the long branch. Like, ideally, Brad, I think we'd be doing a movie with Matthew McConaughey to go along with this long branch. And he is very much not in this movie. Well, but I, I think that ideally we would be co-hosting a movie about Matthew McConaughey <laughs> with Matthew, with Matthew McConaughey. McConaughey. But you yeah. know what? This is the next best thing. It was the, the, the most prominently Texas-based movie on our list this year. So I figured let's use the long branch now and give it a full review. Brad, the story behind this long branch is that Matthew McConaughey was was hired on as a spokesperson and creative director for Wild Turkey a few years back. They decided to let him kind of develop his own whiskey. He went back and forth with Eddie and Jimmy Russell about what kind of whiskey he would like. We found out from talking with Eddie and reading a bunch of PR materials that Matthew McConaughey likes his whiskey a bit watered down. He says he likes it with ice. And so uh, this one does not clock in at a very high proof, Brad. It only clocks in at 86 proof. However, Mr. McConaughey decided to experiment with some smokiness and wanted to bring some of his Texas roots to the party. And so what this particular whiskey is, is it's Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey that has been refined, they say, with mesquite charcoal. So he's trying to bring some of that mesquite wood to the party uh, with this Kentucky bourbon. It's supposed to give it a layer of smokiness. I don't know if I buy that 100%, Brad, but we're going to give it a try. Yeah, as I as I pick up the nose on this bad boy, I think that it's very bright. Um, I wouldn't say it's florally, but it has some nice, sweet undertones to it that I, I almost feel like it's a it's a smooth toffee with a little bit of nuttiness to it. So I kind of get where you're coming from, Brad, but for me, this just smells like a low proof whiskey. Like it has the brightness because I don't think it's high proof enough to really carry some of those darker tones that we normally get. The caramel, the vanilla, the brown sugar. It definitely has a few top heavy fruit notes, a little bit of maybe some peach on it. I am surprised at how alcoholic the nose is. It's a little harsh on the nose for me. And then underneath that is a lot of char. I think that mesquite smoke is coming through, but it's coming through in the form of like not oakiness, but actual smoke. And uh, I don't know, Brad, what are you thinking about that? It's not really like a peat smoke. It just kind of smells a little bit like ashtray to me <laughs> or like recently extinguished campfire. I was going to say, Bob, to me, it smells like a really nice campfire. I, I think it has a really nice, soft, smoky smell to it. Not not like when the campfire like starts blowing in your face and you have to move your chair. It's like when you're <laughs> the other person on the other side of the fire from that person and you're just like, oh, man, this is nice. This week on Bob and Brad break down a campfire diagram. <laughs> no, I, I get you, Brad. I, I guess I'm just not used to having so much smoke on my American whiskey like this. This almost reminds me of like a watered down peaty scotch in terms of how much smoke this is delivering. If the goal for them was to be make it as smoky as possible, I think they're succeeding so far. It's just not really my cup of tea. I'm going to give it a six and a half on the nose. Yeah, it's not the most spectacular nose I've ever smelt, but I think it's worth a decent score. I'm going to give it a seven and a half out of ten. All right, Brad, let's take a sip and see what they uh, came up with here. Oh, man, Bob, that is so nice. Oh, dis I think disagree. I think, I think that is just an eminently drinkable, yeah. interesting whiskey. Yeah, it's interesting. 
Yeah, Brad, so here, okay. Uh, let me let me tell you where I'm at with it. It is vaguely sweet. It has like a, a general corn sweetness to it. It's very thin in terms of mouthfeel. I think you can tell that it's low proof just by how thin it is. But it's not really like, I don't know how to explain it. It's not sweet all the way through. Like it's sweet on the tip of my tongue and then it goes to that campfire smoke. When I go to swallow, it's a little bit sweet again. And then I get like a pretty tremendous chest burn Kentucky hug. I know that I'm kind of blending finish with taste here, but it just doesn't seem like one cohesive tasting experience to me. It's like, okay, I want you to drink a shot of this 80 proof whiskey. And while it's still in your mouth, I want you to take a puff of this cigar and then kind of swish it all around in your mouth together. Like it, it's just like sweet and then smoky, but not either of them at the first at, at the same time. And it's kind of a mess to me. I'm not a fan of this. Honestly, for me, it, it kind of feels like a mixture of like a cream soda and like a ginger beer. Like, like it's got a little bit of that spiciness. And yet it's still nice and sweet and palatable. I, I think it's a solid whiskey. It's It's not the best in the world. Once again, like I said on the nose. I like the taste here. I like that little bit of mesquite char. I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10 on the on the palate. So I think I'll give it a 5 out of 10 on the palate. I'm not a huge fan of this. I will say that the immediate taste as soon as you swallow that's left in your mouth reminds me a lot of Laphroaig. Like it's the smokiness, but it's also that really drying, bitter, oaky flavor as well. And as I remember, Brad, you are a, a much bigger fan of heavily peated whiskeys than I am. And so I... It kind of makes sense to me that you would like this more than me. But for me, it's just a five. And then on the finish, I think I'll give it a five and a half. Like I said, there is way more of a chest burn than I expected with an 86 proof whiskey. Uh, and and the flavors that stay in your mouth are not incredibly pleasant. So it's a five and a half for me. Yeah, I mean, there's like a little bit of, I don't know, like a burst of of warmth as it kind of goes down. You know, it's not overpowering in any way. And it lingers the flavors of that smoky sweetness for a little while, just about of a medium finish, not terribly long. I like the finish well enough. I'll give it a seven and a half. All right. That takes us to overall balance. This is where we talk about nose, taste, and finish as one cohesive thing. Does anything stand out in a positive or negative way, or is it one nice, well-rounded experience? Brad, for me, I don't think this is an incredibly well-rounded experience. I will give it credit and say that what was on the nose was on the taste and was on the finish. All of the components were there throughout, um, but it just seemed like this really sharp up and down of like sweet smoke, sweet smoke, sweet smoke. And it never really seemed like those two extremes were married together very well. So once again, I think I'll just give it a five and a half on balance. I, I will agree with you there that the balance is not quite there. You have the sweet and smoky. I like them together, but they're not extremely well balanced. They're very obvious, you know, from one to the next. And so I'm going to give it a six out of 10 on balance. And when we round out our score with value, we're looking at a price of $34.99 in the state of Ohio for some Long Branch. Honestly, Bob, I would say for $35, this is a little bit overpriced, mm-hmm. but but that extra like 5 to $6 that you're paying is for the name Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> you know what I mean? It really is. He needs our help. Like, it's, I, like, it's basically a large GoFundMe for Matthew McConaughey. 
Well, <laughs> no, I meant more of like, that's what you're paying because he helped develop right. it. No, I, I agree, Brad. Like, and like I, this is like a $28, $29 bottle of whiskey that is jacked up a little bit because of who helped create yep. it. And actually, Brad, I think that the price point you're suggesting is exactly where I felt too. Like this should be about $28. I will say as far as it goes that the bottle design on this is freaking beautiful. It is, oh, it dude, is it's, such it's amazing. aesthetically pleasing bottle. The, the wood topper with the turkey in it is just fantastic. So if you want a cool looking bottle on your shelf, I would recommend it for that. I do think this is overpriced by, like you said, six or so dollars, Brad. And so I'm only going to give this uh, six and a half on value. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you. I'm going to give it a seven on value. I, I don't think it's great value, but it's still worth having. And I'll go back to our old standby. If you can get, you know, if you can get a few ounces of it neat at your local bar, go for it. Check it out. It, it's a whiskey worth drinking that I would recommend. I don't know about you, Bob. I would not recommend this, Brad. I And again, that's my, oh. that's my personal preference. I don't think that it's like an unpalatable whiskey. I just don't think that it's worth the price. I don't think that it's worth all the marketing that we've seen on it. I don't think they married those those extremes very well together. Um, I would pass on this if you offered it to me again. Again, we're very grateful to Wild Turkey for sending us these bottles. This is just not my cup of tea, and it's bringing me out to a 29 out of 50. Brad, where are you on this one? Well, Wild Turkey, don't listen to Bob. I think it's a very, very good whiskey that is well worth having on our shelves. So if you ever need a spokesman, just contact me directly. Because <laughs> I gave it a 35 out of 50, oh, which wow. I think is a pretty respectable score. Yeah, uh, I mean, that means that we're six full points or 12 percentage points apart. <laughs> it's about where the prices ended up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's bringing us out to a 64 out of 100 or a 32 out of 50. So again, you have divided opinions on this one. I think it's an above average whiskey. I just wouldn't recommend it to anybody. And Brad, it sounds like you would. Yeah, I would. And honestly, I think 32 is a fair place for this whiskey to be. It's solid, but it's it's not like the greatest whiskey you ever have. I like it though. It's good stuff. Well, Brad, what do you say we get back into talking about No Country for Old Men? Right, so that was Wild Turkey Long Branch, a whiskey that we are divided on, and we're getting back into talking about, as Brad would call it, No Country for Old Men, a a movie <laughs> no, that no country, <laughs> no country for anyone, Bob. A movie that it sounds like we might be slightly divided on as well. Brad, I mean, I don't really know how much more we have to say about this movie. We've gotten into the performances, we've gotten into to some of the direction. I do think it's worth noting that the cinematography by Roger Deakins, who is the modern master of cinematography, is once again impeccable. He was nominated for the Oscar for this. He did not win. Every time I watch a movie that he shot, it's just like he's such a master of light and color that, you know, the darks in a shot, the blacks in a shot, they look even blacker. The colors look crisper. 
it's just such a beautiful movie to look at, even though, you know, I think it's designed to look as simple and plain as possible. You can tell just how much of a master there is behind the camera shooting it. Yeah, it really was a beautiful movie. And even in the midst of kind of the desolate nature of the film, the way he moves the camera is what really attracted me. Uh, the One of the shots that I really liked the most was at the very end of the film when he's talking to Ellis, the somehow related old man who's in a wheelchair. And it's near the end of their conversation. And he kind of gives him a medium shot where the Ellis is sitting in the middle of the shot and he just barely zooms in. Like, like I had to look at the bottom of the screen. There's like a coffee cup down there to see if we were like edging closer mm-hmm. and the coffee cup was moving out of sight. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it's a very, it's a very subtle push. He does it a couple times in the movie where like he pushes in. It's not a zoom. It's a push. But it's so slow and so subtle, it builds the tension. It builds a little bit of like, I don't want to say claustrophobia, but he's moving the camera in ways that you're not even noticing. Right. And, and so little things like that, I was just like, man, this this dude knows what he's doing. I, I really like Roger Deacon a lot. And I think that, you know, as directors, Joel and Ethan Cohen, again, in this movie, this might be for me their most suspenseful film. And they've made some suspenseful movies before. I think the decision to not use music in really crucial moments, every time somebody is sitting on a motel bed and looking at the shadow of feet under the doorway, every time you're waiting for the lock to be popped out by that air gun that Anton Chigurh has, I was, Brad, there were moments in this movie where it was just so, so tense that I really was on the edge of my seat watching it. And I think that they do a really, really masterful job of building that suspense. Yeah, I will say the the air tank gun felt so gimmicky to me. Mm. How did like how did you feel about that? Did that like intrigue you? Because as soon as he shot one person with it, I was kind of like, oh, it's kind of his gimmick. He uses this weird air tank gun thing. But then he kind of abandons it halfway through and goes for this massively suppressed like shotgun. And you're just kind of like, what is going on here? Yeah, the, the silencer on the shotgun, that weapon was way cooler to me than the, the air gun thing. It Exa- just seems yeah. like such a cumbersome weapon to carry around because you have this giant air tank. Like he right. looks like an old man with oxygen trying to carry yeah. this stuff around. So, yeah, I agree with you, Brad. That that element was it was like they were trying to build the mythology of their villain. And it was it was right. happening in really gimmicky ways. I, and I think it's one of those things where it's like if he had used it once to kill one person or to blow in one lock, it would have been like, oh, he's just like the Punisher and he's using the tools around him to like, you know, be innovative. But the fact that he used it like four or five times in a row and then didn't use it a single time the rest of the movie was kind of like, well, wait, what? Why? Like, huh? It, it was just, and I know that might be petty, but it's like little things like that where that were confusing to me where I was kind of like, oh, I, uh, okay. Sure. Yeah. There were moments in this movie where I was also confused. The biggest one for me was this really small scene where Tommy Lee Jones returns back to the scene of the crime where Llewellyn Moss had been killed after somebody makes an offhanded comment about how Sugar had gone back to the scene of his last crime. He walks up to the door of this motel and he sees that the lock has been blown in by Sugar's preferred weapon, this this air tank. And he still chooses to go in the room. And right before he kicks in the door, we have this cross cutting where you see Shigur hiding behind a door. 
and you're thinking that he's in the room. And then it turns out that when he kicks in the door, he wasn't in the room anyway. And I've read a little bit online about how people are interpret that scene that either he was in the next room over, which doesn't make sense because the lock wasn't blown out or that they were just kind of cross cutting as a way to fool the audience, uh, showing that he had been there earlier. And that when Tommy Lee Jones sees that the, the money had been taken out of the air duct, that that was supposed to show the audience that Shigur had already been there and left and they were just pulling one over on you. I just like it seemed like a really cheap way to build suspense and there was no payoff to that scene. And it actually like really confused me, too. I don't know if you had a problem with that scene at all. Oh, it was so weird. I, I was just I had to like pause it and rewind it and watch it again because I was like, I don't really know what's happening here. But like, I was still behind the door. I couldn't tell. Right. Yeah. And and I don't think it should ever be a director's goal to like confuse the audience in a way that doesn't advance the plot. Mm-hmm. Like, I, like, I'm fine mm-hmm. if you confuse the audience, you know, like in a psycho type of way, like confusing the audience about the mother being alive. Like, that, like that's fine. But in this, it's just kind of like, I, why why were you trying to confuse us? Were they trying to confuse us? I, I don't know. <laughs> but I will say you bringing him going into like breaking into a door made me think about probably one of my favorite lines of the movie was. <laughs> When him and the young deputy are like breaking into Llewellyn's uh, trailer and he and they see that the lock is blown in and he goes, oh, guns up. And the guy pulls his gun out and he looks at Tommy Lee Jones. He goes, what about you? And he goes, oh, I'm hiding behind you. <laughs> I really do love the banter. And uh, actually, that the, the two of them have my favorite line in the whole movie, which is when they first kind of go investigate the scene of this botched drug deal and find all these dead bodies and the the young deputy just kind of says well it's a mess isn't it and tommy lee jones says well if it ain't it'll do till the mess gets here and it's like it's it's a funny line but it's also so like forewarning and ominous it's just a perfect line for this movie and brad that's kind of where i'm coming out on this film I really, really love this movie, and I also think that it has a few crucial flaws that keep it from being, like, in the 9.5 or 10 range for me. I've seen so much ink spilled. I've been reading articles and articles all day that are trying to, like, analyze this movie, and it always comes down to this thing of, is it about fate and chance versus free will, or is it about something else? And I do think that you get into some of these questions about good and evil and, and fate versus free will or chance versus free will. But for me, the the overarching theme of this movie that they keep going back to is this idea that we are living in a world that is rapidly declining and that everybody is being corrupted and that the good people are powerless to stop it. And it really is kind of a lament. And in that in that way, I actually really appreciate this movie. I think the Coen brothers really make a more coherent point in this movie than they do in others. You know, they keep going back to this idea that every time someone offers somebody money, it's like they flip a switch when Llewellyn is staggering over the bridge, bleeding. And at first he runs into these three guys who were coming back from Mexico and they're like really concerned, like, hey, did you get in a car accident, mister? And then as soon as he says, I'll give you five hundred dollars for your shirt, they're like haggling with him like they've become corrupted by the money. And then at the end of the movie, when Shigur gets in his car wreck, these kids are like, well, shoot, mister, I'll give you my shirt. I'm happy to help somebody out. And then he gives him $100. And then as he walks away, they leave the the sound on with these two kids arguing over how they're going to divide up the money. And it's like Shigur is continuing to like corrupt people in his wake. And I think it's a really bleak movie. It's a really downbeat movie. 
I do appreciate that the point is at least clear and coherent because I don't think it is with some other Coen Brothers movies. But like I said, Brad, there's a few key issues with this movie that I think keep it out of that upper echelon. So for me, I'm going to give this movie an eight and a half out of 10. I think that's a fair score. For me, I come at it and I say, well, Bob, I I don't know if it's as clear and coherent as you think it is, because you literally said that you had to spend the whole day reading all these articles about what people think the movie is about. I think that a movie can be complex in the way that it conveys a meaning and yet still be clear about what that meaning is. And I think the Coen brothers kind of fail on that account in this movie. It is nuanced. It's interesting. I like the story that's happening. I dislike that they throw the story away for their message that's not clear. Uh, so for me, I'm I'm a little bit cooler on this movie than you. I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10. I, I think it's solid. It's good. But there is too much just vagueness about the film that kept me from like really enjoying it. All right, so there you have it. Brad gives it a 7, I give it an 8.5. That brings our average out to a 7.75 out of 10. But we want to know what you think. If you have thoughts on No Country for Old Men, let us know. You can find us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, at Film Whiskey. Or you can leave us a voicemail. Let your voice be heard here on the Film and Whiskey podcast. Our phone number is 216-800-5923. Once again, that number is 216-800-5923. Or you can leave us a voicemail on our website, which is anchor.fm slash filmwhiskey. Next week, we start a small mini series of movies that are celebrating their 10th anniversary. So we're looking at movies from 2010, and we're going to kick things off with one of Martin Scorsese's unsung masterpieces, Shutter Island. So we'll see you for that next week for the Film and Whiskey podcast. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>